Hello and welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. My name is Tane Danger and I'm director of the forum. This is a special podcast-only edition of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. It's a conversation with me and former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. If you've never listened before to the Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast, welcome. We are based out of Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Our mission is to invite voices of conscience to address the issues of the day from an ethical perspective. And I think today we do that very well with Ambassador Yovanovitch. She was in Minnesota as part of a trip coordinated by our friends at Global Minnesota. Highly encourage you to check out Global Minnesota. They do great programs throughout the year, and we're very grateful that they help make Ambassador Yovanovitch available for us to chat with her today. So check out globalminnesota.org. Ambassador Yovanovitch served more than 30 years in the U.S. State Department under both Democratic and Republican presidents. She served in Russia, Somalia, the U.K., as ambassador to Armenia and ambassador to Kyrgyzstan. It was as ambassador to Ukraine that Yovanovitch ended up the target of a smear campaign orchestrated in part by then-President Donald Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, who was looking to dig up dirt on the presumed 2020 rival to Donald Trump, Joe Biden. As part of this then-President Trump recalled Ambassador Yovanovitch from Ukraine, despite people at the State Department telling her she had done nothing wrong. These dealings in Ukraine ultimately led to President Trump's first impeachment, which featured dramatic testimony from Ambassador Yovanovitch. She is out with a comprehensive and best-selling memoir called Lessons from the Edge. It's available now in hardback and just coming out in paperback. So without further ado, here's my conversation with former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. Very excited to have you here. Thank you so much, and uh, welcome to Westminster. It is great to be here. There is a, there's so much in your book and so much to talk about. There is a theme of service and of love of country that comes through. It's what got you into this work uh, very mm-hmm. much from the beginning. Can you just talk a little bit about how you came to want to be a diplomat in the Foreign Service. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking that question, because I think it is a really important um, part of my life, my career, and and, and of the book, as you mentioned. Uh, So as um, some in your audience may know, I'm an immigrant to the United States. My parents were immigrants. And they grew up, um, you know, during World War II in Europe, and uh, knew what it was to live under authoritarian regimes, knew what it was not to be able to speak your mind, not to be able to worship as you please, to be afraid. And uh, when they came to the United States and found sanctuary here, they were grateful. And they brought my brother and I up to, to, to be grateful to the United States and to understand that with the rights we have in America, as American citizens or even guests of the United States. Uh, We have rights, um, but we also have responsibilities. And part of that is to give back. We were fortunate, you know, even though we had nothing, we were fortunate to be here in the United States and to um, 
um, to uh, take advantage of everything this country has to offer. And so we had to find ways to give back. And there are so many ways to give back, to serve the American people. I mean, it can be, um, you know, leading a Girl Scout troop or volunteering at a library or, you know, doing many different things. Um, so I wasn't quite sure, you know, what I was going to do with my life. As, you know, many people in their teens and their early 20s, you take a lot of detours. And that's all good because you learn stuff in those detours. Um, but eventually I decided that really what I wanted to do was to, to uh, marry up my interests in history and politics and policy in traveling around the world uh, and meeting people from different cultures, living in those cultures uh, with, uh, with my desire to serve. And so that all of those issues um, kind of came together in the Foreign Service working for the State Department. And um, so I, I, after a couple of years, I did join the State Department after I made that decision. I was very lucky. There, so I, I actually wasn't going to ask this, but you have a couple of detours that you mentioned in the book about you were a waitress for a time, and you talked about you, you kept your, your apron around just in case someday you needed it again. Um, but you also had a, a side detour. Uh, you worked in advertising, mm -hmm. if I remember, for a couple of... Was there anything that you learned in advertising that was valuable as a, a diplomat? Yeah. I mean, um, I think in advertising and marketing, it's all about communications, right? Communicating, you know, in this case, to sell a product. Um, but, um, you know, when, when you're in diplomacy, it's also about communication, and it can be about many different things. It's about sharing with uh, the people you come into contact with what America is all about. You know, not only our values and our interests and what our policy is on a particular point, but about our culture. Um, people are really interested in that, and we, as representatives of the United States, get to share all that. And so being an effective communicator is really important. Oh, I, I'm curious, like, I don't know, when you were uh, out at tea with someone or, like, at, at a bar or wherever you were, and somebody was like, oh, you're, you're a diplomat or you're, you're the ambassador, what does that actually mean? What do, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? That is such a good question, and I don't have a really great answer for you because it means different things in different countries depending on what our relationship is with that country, depending on uh, what that country is interested in from, um, from the United States. Um, and, um, you know, where you are kind of within the embassy, because um, our embassies, I mean, you tend to think of it as kind of a political officer who is out there reporting on, on political developments in the country and reports back to Washington and implements our policy in the field. But there are many other specialties in, in, in the Foreign Service, economic, for example, economic commercial, um, consular work, where we um, take care of American citizens overseas, getting them passports, helping them with adoptions, helping them during crisis. Um, and of course, the visa work that comes uh, comes with consular work as well, and administrative work. That's what I did in my first tour in Somalia, and um, so it can be very many different things. And then there are different agencies, government agencies in Washington, that also have a presence in our embassies overseas. So um, you know, it, it it can just be different at different times. So just to pick an example, when I was ambassador in Ukraine, we were very interested in a number of things, and the Ukrainians were very interested in the same things. Number one, um, I, I got there in 2016. There was still a war. Um, Russia had invaded in 2014, 2015, never left. Three to four um, Ukrainians died every week when I arrived and throughout the time that I was there. This is all before the, the total invasion of Ukraine in 2022. 
And so we were all about training and equipping the Ukrainian military, helping them increase um, their, um, their uh, capacity, their capabilities, and, um, and uh, you know, we uh, were very involved in that. But the other part of it was um, helping them uh, with their uh, political um, evolution. They wanted to be um, a true democracy. They wanted rule of law. They had had two revolutions where the people said that's what they wanted. And so there was a huge demand from the Ukrainian people to uh, you know, uh, tackle the corruption issue, tackle the justice issues, et cetera, et cetera. And so we were very active in helping the Ukra reformers in the Ukrainian government, in the Ukrainian um, civil society, um, work on those issues. And so that was um, very satisfying, really, really hard, because yeah. change is difficult. You think of our own country. Um, and, uh, but it was very, very satisfying. So, and thank you so much. You teed up something I really wanted to talk about. I think that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of Americans who might sort of think, oh, Russian war in Ukraine started in February of 2022. Absolutely, it was, it was happening long before that. I'm going to do a terribly unfair thing, which is to ask you, uh, can you kind of paint a picture of Ukraine and sort of that trajectory that was happening or late 2010s into this last sort of several years where you were ambassador and now this war that we're seeing sort of. So I'm going to up the ante and I'm going to take you back to 1991. Great. Which is when, um, when the uh, Soviet Union fell apart. Um, and there were 15 uh, republics that became independent countries, right? Ukraine was one of them. And they had a referendum. And every single part of, you know, the, the states, in, in, in effect, they're called oblasts there, um, every single oblast uh, voted for independence. Um, and sometimes people forget that because they think, oh, well, the East, you know, th those, they speak Russian there, so they must be sympathetic to Russia or in Crimea. But those places also voted for independence. They wanted to be part of a new Ukrainian country. So I um, went to Ukraine for the first time in 2001 as the number two in the embassy. And um, so that was 10 years after independence. And a civil society was just kind of taking root in, um, in Ukraine. And we don't think much about civil society in the United States because it is so much a part of how we live. I mean, people don't wait for the U.S. government, for the mayor of Minneapolis to tell you what to do. If you're worried <laughs> about a particular issue, you're going to lobby the mayor. Um, you're going to lobby your representatives to get something done, whether it's a park, uh, you know, a stoplight, you know, at, at, a, at a street corner near your children's school. You're going to take matters. Um, I mean, this sounds like a really strong statement, but you're going to take matters into your own hands. You're going to take the initiative. In the former Soviet Union, that wasn't possible. Everything was run by the Communist Party, and any initiative was punished because you wouldn't want, you know, a couple of kids playing chess to start you know, some independent conversation about something that, you know, maybe their lives could be better or whatever the case might be, had to have that Communist Party imprimatur on it. And so when independence came, people weren't ready. The leaders weren't ready. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, and neither were the people that, that, you know, make, that are the lifeblood of a functioning democracy. And um, by, when I got there in 2001, you were already starting to see the beginnings of civil society uh, with, um, you know, really brave 
reporters who were looking into the hard issues of, you know, what is our president doing? How did he make that deal? Is he taking some of that money for himself? Um, it was dangerous work. Uh, it was important work. And, you know, fast forward to 2004. I, I was already gone, um, but there were presidential elections. A reformer, uh, like literally a reformer versus the pro-Russia guy. And um, the pro-Russia guy um, had fiddled the elections, and the people took to the streets. It was called the Orange Revolution, and um, it was a peaceful revolution, and they said, you know, we want a rerun of this election. We want the guy we know he won. And sure enough, he did win, um, but it, in the end, he turned out to be a very disappointing president, unfortunately. Uh, and so, you know, fast forward um, through, uh, through the... Um, early 2000s. And, you know, every year you have um, Ukrainian students going to travel to Europe, going to study to Europe, study in the United States. Some of them stay there and, you know, get jobs in, 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 as accountants, as stockbrokers and the financial markets. They're learning and they are uh, about what it means to build a market economy, about what it is to live in a democracy and the kinds of things that they should be expecting from their, uh, their leaders. And so in 2014, uh, when uh, the leader of Ukraine, um, when he turned his back on the European Union, and I won't go into too much detail about that, but he turned his back on the European Union, and a, a bunch of students um, peacefully demonstrated in the streets because they saw their futures collapsing. You know, that visa-free travel to Europe was gone. The ability to study more easily in uh, Europe was gone, the ability to have jobs in Europe, and their parents were worried about, you know, commerce and business, that they had been imagining how they would expand that trade to Europe and everything else, gone. So the students, um, you know, just a handful of students at first, but it grew, um, took to the streets, and the regime made a, a, a terrible error. They used violence against them. And so Mustafa Nayem, who, is a, who at the time was an investigative journalist, he took to Facebook and he said, aren't we going to support our students? And whoosh, everybody went down to the square. And the demonstrations went on for months during a very cold winter. Uh, the regime used violence uh, against people, but they stayed anyway. And um, in the end, um, that leader uh, left the country. He, uh, he fled the country with allegedly $40 billion, which is a lot of money in any country. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, fast forward to June of that year, there were presidential elections. And that president, Poroshenko, was an oligarch, but he had a mandate for reform from the people. And so the international community, the reformers in government and civil society, we all worked together to try to deliver on the promises of, uh, you know, the, the uh, revolution of dignity, it was called, which means I want to live according to the rule of law. I want to be treated with dignity because I am a Ukrainian citizen and I deserve no less. It was really inspiring. And this is all happening. And then meanwhile, Russia is over here and felt like this is, was working out the way that we wanted. I mean, how did you understand this, the original invasion with Crimea and then the Donbass yeah. that you're talking about? Uh, I think that people are honestly still trying to figure out exactly what the thought pattern was, but how did you understand it for, from yeah. your perspective? Yeah, I, I, it, 
yeah, it was overwhelming, I think, at the time, both for the international community and most of all for the Ukrainian people and for this nascent government, right? Um, and I think, you know, we're beginning to understand that maybe Russia had plans all along to invade Crimea, um, but certainly took advantage of, uh, of the situation in, in, in Ukraine and invaded Crimea. You'll recall that President Putin for about a year denied that it was the Russians. Um, even though everybody, of course, knew that it was. But it made it harder for the international community to kind of coalesce and come up with a coherent policy um, when Russia was, uh, was denying everything. But Russia continued its actions. Um, and, um, you know, Crimea, in Crimea, within a month, they had an illegal referendum where they <clears throat> browbeat the residents of Crimea <clears throat> and um, did not give them meaningful choices as to their future. Um, and um, shortly after that, they, um, they invaded uh, the east of Ukraine in the Donbass, the so-called Donbass, Donbass, uh, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. And um, they continued that, you know, I call it a low-level war. I mean, in the beginning, it was, uh, it was very serious fighting, uh, and, and thousands died. Um, but... Uh, after um, the, um, there were negotiations that were sponsored by the French and uh, the Germans with uh, Ukraine and Russia um, participating, uh, they were called the Minsk Agreements. And they did not, it was about a ceasefire, uh, an end to the fighting, you know, saving lives, but it wasn't a meaningful um, end to um, the hostilities. And so the fighting continued. And so this is why now, um, the Ukrainian people are very concerned uh, that any kind of negotiation in the future, um, that it not be what they call a Minsk III, something that just stops the fighting temporarily, but doesn't meaningfully resolve the political issues and the problems that have been caused by Russia's war of aggression. So we should say, I mentioned in the intro, you were in Russia in the mid-90s uh, during Yeltsin, yeah. uh, just before sort of Putin comes... Yeah, uh, 93 on, to 96. Uh, ...back on the scene. I, I, this, is, this is a thing I feel like people have thought about and been trying to figure out uh, Russian President Putin for decades. But I, let me ask it this way. Do you, how do you feel about sort of the great man, great woman theory of history, where it's like, oh, history is driven by particular characters? I will say for my part, I always thought that that's kind of uh, overblown, very outdated, that it's these people that really drive these things, that countries are bigger than that, and they make decisions for a myriad of different reasons that reflect a variety of different interests, and yet... It does feel like it, it. Would you imagine Russia doing some of these things that it's doing in a place like Ukraine if it weren't for a Vladimir Putin? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I take your point that you know, country. There are many different reasons for why why things happen, um, and I agree with that. But I do think that individuals matter. I think they matter. You know, at that presidential level, I also think they matter at you know the level of you and me and how we interact. And so I don't think one should ever discount. Um, the effect that an individual has on history or, you know, on a, on a gathering. And um, it's, you know, certainly Putin, uh, he had many choices when he came to power in 2001 um, in terms of his relationship with the West. And almost at every point, um, you know, uh, from about 2003, 2004 on, you know, from a Western point of view, he took the wrong decision. 
um, rather than um, sort of reaching out uh, to that outstretched hand from the United States, um, you know, he, uh, he uh, sort of uh, turned away from that. And I think, you know, we have the culmination now in this war on, on Ukraine. I call it the culmination because that's what we've seen so far. But I think Putin has made very clear that he has greater ambitions in terms of, you know, expanding the Russian empire beyond Ukraine, um, you know, first obviously getting Ukraine, um, but then expanding it beyond Ukraine. And also in thinking about how international relations operate in, in this world of this century. Um, he doesn't feel, uh, he, you know, he wants to live in a might-makes-right world because that works for him, that works for Russia. But that would make, I think, not just Ukraine less secure, it would make all of us less secure, less prosperous, and frankly, less free. And so we have a big stake in what is going on in Ukraine. We help Ukraine because it is the right thing to do, but it is also the smart thing to do. Because if Putin wins in Ukraine, he will keep on going, and we will be forced to um, stop him someplace else. You noted that he made a lot of decisions from a Western point of view that we can say, yeah, that was taking a left turn where everybody wanted him to take a right turn uh, in his relationships with the West. Are there places that you think about that the West or the U.S. could have engaged him or the Russia that might have steered this trajectory in a different way? Were there missed opportunities or just things that we might have done differently over a period of 20 years? You know, I, I'm sure there there are. I can't think of them right now, though, because when I, you know, I, I was in Russia and working on Russian issues during the 90s, and then after that, I was, you know, in, in the neighborhood, shall right. we say, so following things fairly closely. And, you know, certainly from a neighborhood perspective, all of the attention was going to Russia, whether it was high-level visits, whether it was assistance to the country, um, whether it was the focus on the security side. It was all going, uh, not all going to Russia, but the lion's share of it was going to Russia. And, you know, um, being in the neighborhood and other countries, I was thinking, hey, you know, I mean, it'd be good if we paid more attention to some of these other countries as well. Um, so, you know, it, a lot of people point to the early 90s where um, Western assistance wasn't as um, constructive as it should have been uh, in terms of helping Russia become a democracy or a market economy. And, you know, the question is, what, what would we have done better? What should we have done better? How could we have done it differently? And I haven't really gotten a good answer to, 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 to that question. Um, we could have said no. You know, you guys, you know, we, we won the Cold War. You guys, you're on your own. Um, but Russia asked us, you know, the first reformer government, gov government and successive governments after that, they asked for our assistance. And one of the things that I think it's really important to remember as we think about the past but also the future is um, that we in the U.S. think about things through a U.S. lens, always. You know, if something, you know, if something happens someplace else in the world, it's our fault or, you know, we get all the credit. And probably neither is true um, because in every country, even small countries that are not so powerful, much less a country like Russia, every country has agency. And that is usually the most important factor in terms of how things develop. And so that was true of Russia in the 1990s. I'm sure we made mistakes, but you know, I mean, let's not forget <laughs> who was calling the shots and whose country that was and so forth. Um, I think the Russians, um, you know, probably ha uh, had their fair share of mistakes as well. 
And um, in, um, you know, fast forwarding to Putin coming to power, um, you know, he is a man of, um, you know, certain experience with the KGB. And I think, you know, in the beginning, the first year or two in his international relations, he was, you know, looking around. He was already repressing his people at home, you know, going after the oligarchs, going after the opposition, going after journalists, and, you know, that became more and more repressive over time, as, as, as we've seen, including, you know, last year, where sort of the last remnants of anybody who was free uh, were repressed. So, um, you know, I think we need to just remember that Putin has agency as well, and he certainly has. We're recording this on a day when uh, a former president is being indicted and things, and I'm not going to ask about the politics of that, but since you're here and you have expertise in this, (laughs) I feel like it's very valuable to maybe take a moment and say, why is it problematic to have top secret documents sort of potentially out in the open for folks who might hear about that and have never seen a top secret document, have no idea really what would be inside of one. They might be like, well, what's the big deal? I feel like you know why this is a big deal and can help share that. It is a huge deal. Um, So uh, my understanding is that it's not only top secret documents, but even beyond that to um, top secret compartmentalized, which means that um, you have to be read into a particular topic to be able to see that particular reporting or that particular analysis. So it's very, very, it's, it's, it's our nation's most closely guarded secrets. And so I don't know what is in these particular papers um, that uh, allegedly the president had at Mar-a-Lago, the former president. Um, but um, from many different points of view, it's problematic. First of all, there's a reason we have secrets, <laughs> because it is dangerous to uh, let some of that information out. It, it lets our enemies know where our vulnerabilities are or our allies' vulnerabilities are. It, it, it speaks to our planning and our practices. Um, we don't want those things getting out for a reason. So that's number one. Number two is what we call sources and methods, where you know, we have networks all over the world. You know, some of them are electronic, um, some of them are what we call human intelligence, people sharing secrets, people risking their lives to share secrets with our government. And um, if, that, um, if those papers are just left out, smart people who are our enemies, they can figure out how that information was, uh, was gotten. And we know that when, um, when our enemies have figured this out, People have died. Networks have been taken down. This is, this is not a game. And so I feel, as you can tell, very strongly about this because when we ask people to do things for us, we have a responsibility to keep them safe. Um, the other thing is just the level of trust uh, among our allies. So we do um, have um, relationships of trust uh, with certain allies where we share certain kinds of information with them. And they share information with us. And if their information is put out there for others um, who have no business reading it, um, that is a real problem. Are they going to continue to share information with us? And I can just tell you, as somebody you know who served overseas and has ha- have had you know my colleague diplomats asking me, so you know, is this going to remain confidential after they've told me something important? You know. Obviously, I, I reassure them that, yes, we are going to be careful about how we handle this, this information, but it creates this little niggling doubt 
um, which is something we cannot afford as a great power. You come to a point uh, while you're ambassador of Ukraine that you are living this very surreal double life where you are literally fighting corruption in uh, Ukraine and trying to sort of clean up uh, a democracy that we think is like nascent and has some challenges. And so you're trying to help clean that up. And then you become the target in the United States of what a lot of people see as a corrupt system that uh, was doing similar things with you and around you for political reasons. This is a theme that kind of comes through in your book, but the compare and contrast, uh, frankly, between what was happening to you uh, when you were ambassador and um, there was this work from Rudy Giuliani and the president and others uh, against you, uh, and how that compared to things that you had seen sort of as an outside observer, as a diplomat in places like Ukraine and Russia and elsewhere. Yeah. So um, probably at the time, I wasn't so introspective. <laughs> and, um, you know, it bears repeating that I wasn't aware of everything that was going on around me, you know, targeting me and so forth, um, in, you know, in the moment. Uh, you know, it wasn't like Giuliani was calling me up and saying, hey, you know, this is what we're going to do next. Um, you know, I found out many of these things months later, um, you know, when I was removed um, when uh, Deputy Secretary of State Sullivan essentially fired me from, from my position, or, you know, even months later when investigative journalists were looking into, you know, all of, uh, all, all of those issues. So um, the reason I think that um, people consider what happened to me to be part of a corrupt deal, and I certainly do as well, is that uh, the former president uh, and those around him who did not have government positions were using uh, the uh, office of the presidency of the United States um, to get the Ukrainians to dig up dirt on Joe Biden and his family, who they thought um, would be the Democratic candidate, and as it turns out, they were right. Um, they were using their that office for personal gain, for political gain, when, you know, the expectation of the American people is that the President of the United States, first and foremost, should be using his office to protect and defend U.S. interests, to de protect and defend the American people. And that is not what they were doing. They were trading Ukraine's desire to have javelins, which had already been approved by Congress. So there wasn't a question as to whether javelins were going to go. They were just being held up at that point. But, you know, the President of the United States can put a lot of roadblocks into things like that in exchange for dig up some dirt on Joe Biden. I mean, we should expect better from the President of the United States. I started talking about, as you're doing this out of service and love of country, and yet you also talk about that the job of diplomat is you are representing a particular administration. How do you think about that now and trying to balance those two senses of the job? So... You know, when we come into the Foreign Service, when you come into any government job, you understand that you are going to be working for Republican presidents, for Democratic presidents, maybe one day an independent, yeah. who knows, um, and that um, inevitably you're not going to agree with all of their policies on everything. And, um, you know, some of those things may be lower threshold issues that you don't particularly care for. Others may be more important. And so you, you're going to have to make decisions along the way as to whether... Um, these are matters of conscience, um, that you cannot work for this particular president, this particular administration, or not. 
Um, and the other thing I would say is that sometimes there are mitigating factors. So uh, when, um, when um, President uh, uh, Trump was elected in uh, November of 2016, I mean, I thought hard about what that would mean. I, I, I thought that Hillary Clinton would have been the better president. I didn't like um, the way Trump handled himself personally with everybody, but particularly with women. Um, and, um, you know, he had made a number of problematical statements, um, some, of w some of them directly pertaining to Ukraine. That's very diplomatic of you. <laughs> um, yeah, the training is still yeah. there. <laughs> so I, um, I thought, you know, what, what is this going to be like? But I had just arrived in Ukraine. I was old enough to retire. Uh, I could have retired with a pension immediately. Um, but I felt that um, you know, perhaps arrogantly, but I felt that I had the experience to help a new administration. I thought completely incorrectly that, um, you know, traditional Republicans would take Trump under their wing and sort of help him along in terms of foreign policy. Um, and uh, that, you know, some of the issues of, you know, Crimea is Russia because they speak Russian, you know, as though we are British because we speak English. I think we settled that one a long time ago. Um, so I thought that those issues would be smoothed over. And I felt also that um, if there were rough patches coming up ahead, um, that I had the seniority um, and the ability to quit if I had to, to protect the people uh, at the embassy. So, you know, hard, um, you know, when we sent out emails or, or cables that um, were, uh, you know, uh, might not be well received in Washington, shall we say, they came out from me. Um, I thought that that was important. Um, you know, history will judge whether I made the right decision. You were just back in Ukraine. Yeah, three uh, weeks ago. Wondering, A, what you saw there, and then B, if you could speak a little bit about how you felt the United States response more recently has been, particularly on the issue of welcoming uh, refugees here in the United States. Yeah. So um, I was just in Ukraine three weeks ago. Um, I was in the capital in Kyiv. Uh, I did not go to the front lines um, or to other communities. And I was in the center of Kyiv, which um, mostly, e even though there are nightly uh, attacks, as you know, on, on the capital, um, the center is mostly spared. And um, so it's, it's a little bit strange because you're in a beautiful city in the springtime and the lilacs are out and it's mm. a green city but it is a country at war and basically every man woman and child is mobilized i talked to one of my former employees who's um who's uh in a unit in the south and uh, they had just been attacked by the russians and he said a child came up to him with two spent bullet cartridges and said, use this in the next fight. Of mm. course you can't. But, you know, that child gathered up those bullet cartridges um, to help. And so I think, you know, the unity of the Ukrainian people is awesome to behold. Um, I think the skill of um, Ukrainian fighters is, is, is amazing and is um, defending that country really, really well. And I think what we need to do in the U.S. and um, more broadly, um, the, the, the West and the coalition of the willing, so to speak, is to continue to supply Ukraine with as much as possible, as quickly as possible, so that Ukraine can win for the reasons that I stated before. I mean, first of all, it is the right thing to do to help uh, a democracy like Ukraine fend off, um, you know, the Russian tyrant. Um, but um, it also is a matter of our national security, because um, Russia has big ambitions, and we don't 
it is better for our national security if the Ukrainians um, defeat Russia in Ukraine. You know, and I would just add that I know that, you know, uh, you know, many people rightly point out that it's a lot of money that we are um, spending on uh, Ukraine. Um, it is, um, so far, I think we've spent 10% of our annual defense budget on um, Ukrainian security needs. And, um, you know, the Ukrainians have destroyed half of the Russian military. I mean, that's a bargain. So the Russians are still fighting, and they are, um, they are learning. You know, this is not a fight that is going to end with this, this counteroffensive. This is going to continue for some time. Um, but I think <clears throat> the Ukrainians can prevail, but they can only prevail with our help, and we need to give it to them. So the last thing I'm going to ask you, which is something that I've been thinking a lot about, and it, again, you just noted the incredible spirit of the Ukrainian people, which, as we've just talked about, is remarkable in a vacuum, but this isn't a vacuum. This is a country that's relatively young, that's gone through multiple peaceful, largely revolutions, like in just the, our lifetimes. Uh, it's not a country that has been without its own internal challenges and corruption and things, and yet there is an entire population that is committed to it and the idea of it and fighting for it. And I've wondered if there's something that we as Americans should take from that or learn from that about love of country, love of ideals, love of what we stand for. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, you know, Ukraine has had its struggles in terms of uh, creating a, a unified country. And I think that Vladimir Putin and Russia have contributed to that strong sense of unity that you see. Um, I think that when there is an external threat, it is always easier to see uh, what really matters. And what really matters uh, to Ukrainians is their families, um, their freedom, and their future. And they know they want to live in a rule-of-law country. They know they want to live um, according to European values. And that, um, that that is the only way to safeguard their future. And they know that if they don't keep on fighting, if they don't prevail, the Russians will kill them and they will destroy the country of Ukraine. Putin has said as much, and so have his acolytes. Um, so they have every reason to be united and strong against, um, against that uh, foreign invader. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Again, one more time, Ambassador Marie Ivanovich. The book is Lessons from the Edge. Thank you so much for being here, for coming to Minnesota, and for all the great work that you have done over a career. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. A reminder, we have hundreds of other programs that you can listen to at our podcast or on our website, westminsterforum.org. Our theme music is composed by Kenneth Veen and performed by the Copper Street Brass. Audio direction by Keith Kopatz. My name is Tane Danger. Thank you so much. Hope to see you again soon.